This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. As we mentioned, City Council is uh, looking at some pretty harsh numbers here when it comes to the 2017 budget. And uh, you got to wonder, how are they going to get to the uh, percentage increase that they're looking at right now? They're at about 4%, a little over 4% right now. And they want to try to get down to about 1.7, 1.8 as far as a, an increase. for, And, of course, that's going to vary as well. So how are they going to do that? Good question. Uh, we'll put that right down to our next guest. Chris Murray, the city manager for the city of Hamilton, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML to uh, talk to us about how this process is unfolding. Chris, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Uh, great to be here, Bill. You have had challenges and challenges in the past, but uh, is is this particular year, 2017, maybe the most daunting of all t- of, of, of the time that you've been in the city manager's office? Um. I would say it's uh, unprecedented in the sense of it's not just 2017 that we're concerned about. It's actually the next four years. So um, this problem isn't going away. Um, You said at the outset, uh, you gave the percentage uh, tax target that council's given us. And and yes, we're at about 4.4. But just in dollar terms, uh, we are... Uh, trying to address a $20 million problem this year. But that isn't to say that next year isn't going to be a problem in the year after and the year after. So uh, your your listeners need to understand the challenges are, are just not, uh, you know, one year. I mean, in the past, we've been able to address the kind of one-year challenges by doing a number of things, but this is this is a four-year problem. Yeah, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because, I mean, it's it's oftentimes it's easy to just kind of, you know, belittle this thing when you say, well, 4% or 1%, but when you start talking about how many, you know, you're talking a big number here. I mean, $20 million is a lot of money. And and you got to ask yourself if that's what you're trying to reduce from this year's budget, where are they going to the cuts going to come from? And if this is a this is not an easy exercise by any stretch of the imagination. No, it's not. And I mean, it's it's you know I'm not trying to be positive for the sake of positive, but I mean, as much as it's a challenge, I think it's also an opportunity. So, and when you think about twenty million dollars, I mean, certainly everyone goes to cost cuts. Uh, uh, cuts through costs. But the other way, of course, uh, to think about it is, you know, is revenues. And I don't mean necessarily just strictly taxes. I mean, there's, you know, we, there's rates and fees that are paid. I mean, you know, that, that we need to consider too. And my job is to give, you know, council as many palatable options as humanly possible. Um, you know, recognizing there's a few things that I know council historically has not wanted to uh, consider such as bi-weekly uh you know garbage pickup and and certainly um you know things of that nature so there's there's a few things that we know are are probably no goes uh unless that changes and but uh you know we need to we need to look at the organization from the standpoint of you know is there opportunities to consolidate some of the services that we deliver and and uh, and things of that nature so you know it's uh that's a challenge, but uh, at the same time, we know, uh, and you said earlier that uh, you, Friday is tech talk. We know that uh, we could probably leverage technology much more effectively than we are right now. Well, let's let's talk about some of the driving forces here. And, and year in and year out, Chris, you've told us that the, the number one driver of the budget, and just about every municipality really, is salaries and benefits for, for employees. I mean, you know, it's, it's wages and benefits. And uh, which means, okay, you have to look at that number, the number of people that are employed. You're certainly not going to start reducing people's salaries, but do you start to look at ways to try to reduce the workforce then? Is that a way to do that? Is that palatable, and is that on the table? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, palatable, I guess it's in in the eye of the beholder. But <laughs> yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, absolutely. I mean, we have to look at, uh, you know, at the, the workforce, and, uh, you know, and I start with... Uh, you know, our, our non-union or our leadership ranks and, and ask the question, you know, can we get the work done as well, if not better, uh, potentially with fewer people? So um, what's what I think is triggering this conversation, at least at this point uh, today, uh, was a question that Councilor Marula asked me um, Wednesday night at Council yeah, yeah. about the you know, are we are we going to go back and and, uh, and try again the uh, uh, the incentive program that was offered to uh, employees that had their numbers, as they say, so eligible to retire with full pension. And what we did a long time ago um, was, uh, you know, offered people money to retire and um, because they had their numbers. And uh, and uh, the, the problem with that strategy, quite simply, was many of those people, we ended up filling those positions with someone else. So, 
effectively you end up paying twice for roughly the same service. Yeah, it was a disaster. It was, and that was around amalgamation. I was around yeah. back then. And so many it, people took the buyout that we actually had to hire some of them back. I mean, they, are, they got their cash, they got their buyout, and then you had to hire them back, sometimes on a contract basis. It didn't much matter. But it, it, was, it was a financial disaster for the city, really. Yeah, and, and so I, I don't think, you know, I don't think that's the way to do it, uh, obviously. Um, so, I mean, there are a number of people in our organization that have their numbers are eligible to retire. So, you know, we need to look at, look at that and say, you know, how will that work? I mean, the way, the way I think we have to approach all of this is, you know, if we make a decision um, on an individual, we got to be certain that there's going to be sustainable savings. In other words, uh, I will not replace that position, you know, next year or five years or 10 years from now. So, you know, there are some, you know, let's just call them course adjustments to the organization that I think need to be made. And, uh, and that's what our senior leadership team right now is going through is to say, you know, how can we, you know, deliver the same service, I would hope, better um, with fewer people, and uh, which uh, I know will concern people. But, you know, that that is the challenge that we're going through, as well as, you know, finding other ways to uh, to reduce costs and, and generate revenue. So uh, that's the challenge that's in front of us right now. Is that going to be voluntary, or is, is it something that management's going to have to address? And, you know, in other words, are people going to get notices? I, I think eventually that's, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to sit here and sugarcoat anything. I'm just going to tell you that, uh, yeah, there will be some changes to the workforce. And I and I can say that, uh, you know, we're, we're starting, you know, at the top and uh, and looking at how we're structured across the departments and within the divisions. Um, I don't want this to go on forever. I, I think we need some make some decisions in the short order. Uh, I expect I'll be back in front of uh, council in February uh, with uh, some specific strategies around this. Um, so, I mean, that's 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 unfolding. And uh, and then I think, you know, just the way that we deliver services as well. I mean, you know, are we uh, are we getting the value for the money that we're collecting from taxpayers? And in some cases, uh, I think there's arguments to say that we're not and there's better ways of doing things. And so, you know, it's. Um, it's tough, but I mean, at the end of the day, um, there's a good reason why uh, we try to keep our taxes as reasonable as possible. Um, we're a community that many people struggle, uh, and uh, quite honestly, household income is is you know in the next 20 years not going to improve vastly because many of the baby boomers are retiring, uh, so they're going to be on fixed income. So, you know, the the three, four, five, six thousand dollars a year in taxes they pay, you know, has to be you know, taken very seriously as it has in the past. So that's that's really the dilemma that we're in. Chris, what I'm hearing from some of the, the, the people that work for the city, and, and I'm talking about different departments at different times when I run into them and we'll have a conversation, and, and there's a consistent theme from a lot of them that, that, that the city is top-heavy in management, middle management especially. Um, and, and I don't know if that's true or not. I'm, I mean, you're more privy to those numbers than I, but is, is, is that something that you're concerned about? Well, I mean, I'm concerned about those statements. I mean, the the, the facts, though, I think might be slightly different. I, I, I doubt you're going to find a citizen anywhere in this country, uh, you know, talk about their local government and say, you know, I think we got too few uh, high-level people. Um, <laughs> I don't think you'll ever hear that. Uh, or we have just enough high-level people. I mean, um, so I, I expect that comment uh, is going to be made, but at the same time, you know, you've got to look at how we carry out the business of City Hall and and do we have the right number of people looking after these major services that we provide. So um, I hear it. Uh, I'm, not, uh, I'm not ignoring it at all, and I think, you know, as we start to unfold what we're doing here in the next month, you know, people will see there are going to be some changes, and... Uh, you know, I, I need uh, I need my general managers and directors. You know, um, not just running the business, but uh, thinking about where the business is going. Um, you know, there's we, we've just finished doing a report um, a few months ago where we looked at cities across North America and how they're leveraging uh, technology to um, better serve people. And so we, we're developing uh, a blueprint for how we're going to uh, deliver that uh, technology, uh, how we're going to advance technology in the city. Uh, this year. So, you know, there's there's a bunch of ways in which I think we can deliver services as well, if not better. And and I can say, uh, having come to this organization over 20 years ago as a frontline worker, 
Um, great ideas are going to come from anywhere, anyone, at any time. Uh, so, you know, I'm not going to have all the answers to what it is uh, this organization needs to do to save or make money. So I think we're going to start to, um, you know, create structures for people to uh, express ideas that are worth considering um, and not just necessarily follow the chain of command. So um, there are lots of opportunities, I think. And, and I know as a frontline worker, uh, you know, my voice was taken seriously back 20 years ago, and uh, I was able to affect a few things. And I would like people to feel that this organization, uh, uh, you know, if there's a good idea out there and there's many uh, that it'll be given consideration, and uh, and if we can act on it, let's act on it. So there is a potential wait. problem when you start looking at at staff reductions or potential staff reductions here, Chris. And and uh, I, I wanted to get your read on this as well because sure. one of the other concerns that you've talked about before, and a number of people on council have talked about before, are overtime costs at the city. And and if you reduce too much and the workload is is not shared properly. Yeah. somebody's going to be charging overtime and you're not really saving any money at the end of the day because of that. And, and, and that's something that has to be concerned here too. Where do you draw that line? So you can, so, so you don't create another problem by doing this. Yeah. I mean, over time and then you start consulting out or contracting out and, uh, you know, absolutely. Uh, all those things can happen if you cut it too close to the bone. Uh, because at the end of the day, there are so many of our services that, uh, have to happen. I mean, you know, we have to have, a, you know, a certain number of paramedics in each vehicle. You know, we have to respond to fires. We have to, you know, pick up garbage. We have to do a variety of things. And so, um, yeah, if, you, if you're not careful, uh, you know, yeah, you might save in one part of the organization only to drive costs up in others. Council is very much focused on our overtime, um, uh, and we'll be reporting back in the next couple of weeks on that particular matter. Uh, you know, how much do we budget for it and what do we actually end up paying at the end of the year? Now, everyone will appreciate if you have a nice storm, um, you know, that is, uh, is significant that uh, there are going to be costs that uh, uh, are going to accrue to that. Um, and some of that is, you know, um, not entirely unpredictable, but, uh, you know, we do build in a, a bit of for into our overtime programs. But um, we've got to report back, you know, just how tight are we running you know, the service and that, uh, you know, is the overtime that we're accruing, um, you know, is it being managed as effectively as it has to be? And uh, that's what we're going to report back on. And, uh, you know, I believe there is certainly in that area room for improvement. Well, and I can tell you that, uh, that the, uh, just by my observation, too, I, I understand that many councillors are expressing concern about the overtime costs here, but sometimes they're the ones that are causing it. Uh, when you sit and watch some of these meetings and they're asking for a report on this or get me this or do this for me, and uh, it's as if staff are sitting there twiddling their thumbs with nothing to do, and, and that can be problematic. And I know you can't comment on that, but we see it and we understand what's going on in this. The, the counselors have got to consider that sort of thing, too, when they start to, to make requests of staff like that. I mean, there's only so many hours in the day, and you can't keep doing that and then turning around and saying, well, now we're paying too much in overtime. Well, it's, you know, that's the kettle calling the pot black. Well, let, you mentioned something a, a couple of minutes ago that I want to touch on here. We only got a couple of minutes left here. Uh, sure. Increased fees. It's, there's taxes, property taxes is one thing, but but cities looking at generating. You know, we just had the story about uh, Mayor Tory asking for the road tolls, and it looks like the premier is going to give a thumbs down to that. Uh, but as a result, of course, then there's going to be a, a, sh a cash shortfall in Toronto. Uh, so you start looking at other things. What's on the table right now? They they used to call this the ugly list. This is the stuff that staff brings out and says, we're going to charge more for ice time. We're going to charge more for bus fare. We're going to charge more for parking downtown. Uh, is is that what we're looking at here? Uh, and some of this is, I think, somewhat predictable. Um, and uh, so you've listed a number of things here. Um, so, I mean, these are all options that come with dollar figures that can help to uh, address this $20 million challenge that we have. Um, you know, I mean, what what you pay in one part of the city for a, a service, you know, should be the same in other parts of the city. So, I mean, if I'm renting space in a community center, it should be the same from one end to the other. Uh, so where we have these anomalies, I think we can suggest that they get addressed. Um, you know, and then, uh, but I would shift also to other services that we're in that, you know, you know, could someone else deliver them, um, you know, um, I know we've looked at uh, the concession stands in some of our arenas, and I, I know there's there's some interest in looking at at uh, at those uh, those items. You know, is there a better way of you know of still giving you know the uh, the moms and dads and the kids uh, 
uh, you know, the coffee and, and, and drinks and, and food, uh, could we do that differently? I mean, so that's something that I know has uh, been expressed, and we'll look at that. So, what about, what about selling off assets? Is there a discussion about that? I mean, the city owns yeah. a lot of properties. You mentioned arenas. I mean, there's what, <laughs> there's the first Ontario Centre, there's Hamilton Place, there's the Convention Centre, and on and on it goes. You've got people that are operating those, but do, do, do we ask that question? Does the city even need to do that now? Well, the... So the good news is that council did approve a, uh, 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 we call it development task force, basically. It's, it's staff. Uh, we own over 2,000 properties. And uh, are we leveraging them as effectively as we can? I mean, we have, a, as you well know, a housing market and a, and a development market right now that is just heating up. And, you know, to, to sit on an asset that uh, isn't doing as much as it could, i.e. generate jobs and taxes, um, you know, it doesn't make any sense. So I, I've got actually someone, uh, my my director looks after revenue generation, is looking after uh, uh, this development task force. And so, yeah, I mean, don't be surprised in the coming weeks and months that, uh, you know, we put a few things on the table that, uh, you know, may generate some uh, uh, revenue opportunities. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's it, to me it's pretty obvious. Uh, you know, why have something sit there, make us no money when maybe – you know, it can be, uh, you know, put into the marketplace. Um, and the other thing, too, is is that we own hundreds and hundreds of, you know, slices of, of, of property that um, are just sitting there, you know, could be used for, uh, you know, community gardens, could be used for a whole host of things. And so, you know, it's, uh, so we're act we're actioning all that. And uh, plus, you know, like I say, we have a revenue generation uh, uh, wing that uh, a lot of municipalities, uh, oddly enough, don't have that are always thinking about different ways to make money uh, without having to increase rates or fees or taxes. I mean, they look at naming right opportunities. Yeah. They look at a bunch of things, just like the private sector does. We're doing the same thing. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Ontario Premier Kathleen Wynne has uh, increased funding. Uh, the gas tax, uh, there's going to be a lot into it. She says over 100 different communities here in the province of Ontario, including Toronto, uh, and it's really to try to circumvent uh, Mayor John Tory's idea of putting uh, tolls on the roads of the Gardner Expressway and the Don Valley Parkway. Uh, and, and obviously when Mayor Tory talked about doing this initially, uh, there are, let's face it, a couple of different streams of consciousness about this. One is revenue, obviously, and the government, I guess, thinks that since they're going to throw more money at these cities, that the, uh, the issue is going to go away. I'm not so sure because there are a lot of other people that are supportive of road tolls. Uh, look at the environmental aspect of this as well, and the gridlock and the economic issues that are at play here. And uh, that's not necessarily going to be addressed by uh, what the Premier announced today. I don't think so, anyway. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Matty Siamitiki, who is uh, Associate Professor of Geography and Planning at uh, the University of Toronto. Uh, uh, Professor, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Nice to be with you, Bill. Let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, about the concept of road tolls. And, and uh, you know, it just seems as if this is one of these things where just people get this shiver down their spine, like, oh, no, you can't do this to us. It's not uncommon in other parts of, of, of North America, let alone the world, is it? No, road tolls are widely used uh, around the world. Um, they're used in London. They have a very famous congestion charge. They're used in Singapore. Uh, they're in Stockholm. Uh, they're on many roads uh, in the United States, in New York City, uh, and right across the United States, they charge road tolls. So they're very uh, widely used around the world, but they also do bring up a really visceral reaction from motorists, uh, a real concern about uh, having to pay more. People feel like uh, they're tapped out, like they've paid enough. Uh, and road tolls are just uh, oftentimes the final uh, straw where people just feel like they're tapped out. And this is uh, very visceral because you pay them every time you drive. But I understand that because we hear that on this program and just about every other uh, program of this ilk right across the country. Nobody likes to pay taxes. Nobody wants to, to see an increase in their taxes or user fees or whatever the case might be. But it's it's, it's really a fact of life uh, that, that these things are starting to happen right now. But is is that, that the only reason that there's that, that, that pushback every time that uh, this, this comes up, Maddie? Is it, is it the money? Are, are, are people listening to the other elements of the argument about why so many other jurisdictions are using these? I think that's the key point, is road tolls uh, really tick a number of boxes in terms of why they've become popular around the world. Uh, they raise a significant amount of resources to uh, pay for the infrastructure. Our infrastructure is aging. If people want good infrastructure, they want to be able to move around. Uh, we do have to pay for it, and we have to keep it uh, kept up to date. Um, we're losing billions of dollars a year in congestion uh, and, um, and so in this region alone. Uh, 
And so uh, road tolls um, help smooth uh, congestion. Uh, and so they, they provide uh, funding to pay for other transportation options. So that's one reason. And then there's the environmental benefits of um, providing people with incentives to use other modes of travel or perhaps not travel uh, as much, and so or to carpool. So these are uh, the types of reasons why road tolls have become popular. Uh, but I think there's also this notion that uh, people have paid enough. And you're seeing really a, um, a split on this. Many people argue, isn't this the fairest way to pay for infrastructure? User paid. That seems like uh, a fair principle. Uh, if you're going to use the road and you're going to benefit from it, uh, you should pay for it directly. But then the converse argument is, don't we pay enough? That's why we pay our taxes. Um, and, and we pay gas tax. That's partly a user fee uh, for using your car. Uh, we're tapped out. We don't want to pay any more. So you're really, it, but it's really, road tolls especially are so visceral and many people feel like they don't have options. And so that's, how, that's why uh, this uh, uh, point in particular becomes so polarized. One of the, the problems with the, with that debate, though, because we get, I, I think we probably do this every year just around this time as cities are wrestling with their municipal budgets, is that uh, when when there is that pushback and that argument about hey I'm I'm paying enough uh, but I want this service uh, municipalities of course budget in a much different way than than federal and provincial governments do they take the money right off the top and simply say I will tell you how we're going to spend it later on but we're just going to take it for now municipalities have to go the other way around they do there's there's their shopping list of what we need to do this year they cost it out and then they say okay this is your share Maddie Bill this is your share this is how much you each is going to pay so uh, if you if you want reduced fees and you don't want fees then you have to expect that you're going to get less service don't you this is really the paradox is that we've reached a point where people feel like they can get something for nothing uh, with infrastructure we've been living off the investments that have been made decades ago uh, in this region we've missed a generation of investments we've kept taxes low but we you see the impacts in terms of our transportation system which is aging and creaking and can't handle population growth and all the economic activity that's happening here uh, you see it in terms of our affordable housing you see it in our water and energy systems <clears throat> and so this is this is the deferred uh, this is the deferred cost of low ongoing low taxes and now we've reached a we've reached a breaking point the city of toronto alone has um, a capital uh, expenditure uh, outlined for the next 10 years of 33 billion dollars and 22 billion dollars of that is unfunded so if you want good services how are we going to pay for them that's really the question here and i think mayor tory took a bold step by saying i'm going to get out front of this and i'm going to propose road tools now keep in mind the road tools that he proposed was only going to raise uh between 150 and 300 million dollars a year so it wasn't a complete solution uh, but it was the beginning point of a conversation about how to pay for infrastructure and i think the real question is if people don't like road tools which are the other mechanisms that they would prefer is it property taxes which are uh, widely reviled when they go up uh, or is it um, uh, is it going to be a, a local sales tax or is it going to be a parking stall tax? Um, all of these have uh, their drawbacks and people really, uh, whenever any new taxes come up, people get opposed to them. But I think the real question is, if you want a livable city, this is the price of living in a livable city. Uh, and um, if, if it's not this mechanism, then which which funding tool are we going to look to to really pay for this infrastructure? Well, to use the Toronto example, it was not too many years ago, Maddie, that there was a debate there as to whether or not the garden was going to even be torn down. I mean, it was falling apart. You, you took your life into your hands if you drove under it on Lakeshore uh, because there were big, huge pieces of concrete that were falling. And so, and, and then the decision was made, no, we've got to keep it. We need this. Well, you know, we're going to get the money to fix it then. I mean, that's, that's the ultimate question. It's one thing to, for the premier to come back today and say, I'm going to give more money from the gas tax for, trans, for transit. That's a great, I, that's fabulous. We're all on side with that. But it doesn't address the infrastructure need of the city, does it? It's, it's only a small step. And this is really the paradox is that when we had the debate about the gardener, uh, the people in the 905 region who use that, um, that highway to come in were the ones who were most vociferous saying, please don't tear this, uh, this facility down because you're going to slow my trip. Uh, the study showed the trip, uh, the actual additional time of tearing it down was not going to be substantial. But people said any additional uh, time on my day is time that I should be spending other places, whether it's at my job, whether it's recreating, whether it's with my family. So don't tear that down. And that argument won the day. Uh, but that, that facility came with substantially higher costs, keeping the gardener up and maintaining it. And now, uh, as it's, as it's moved forward, the proposal has gotten even more expensive. Uh, that we took, we picked the most expensive option to keep the facility up, but we don't really want to pay for the cost of that decision. And I think that's really what we're seeing here. And we see it across all sorts of different spheres of infrastructure. 
uh, in this region is that we make expensive choices. Uh, the Scarborough subway project comes to mind as well. Mm-hmm. But when it comes time to actually paying the bill, when it comes time to figuring out how you're really going to pay for this infrastructure, we tend to then get cold feet uh, and look and look to other sources. It, it's not surprising that I love that the municipalities would look to the provinces or the, uh, and say, and the federal government and say, pay uh, part of the share. There's been downloading uh, and all sorts of other uh, ways that the, the local governments are taking on additional costs. This was an example where a municipality was uh, trying to show leadership and city council approved this uh, proposal. Uh, and so this is this is now a case where uh, at all levels of government, we're really starting to see the challenges of uh, raising revenue to pay for the infrastructure we so badly need. It's, it's interesting, though. I, I guess we're doing it just as we're speaking here, though, Maddie. Is, is the, the, the discussion always seems to focus on the revenue generation and not the other elements of, of why municipalities or jurisdictions would, would do this sort of thing. Uh, and, you know, we'll rile against and rail against this idea of putting a road toll on the gardener, for instance, and then happily uh, on Friday afternoon get in the car and drive to Ellicottville to go skiing and have no problem at all paying to go on the U.S. interstate there. Uh, it's just, it just seems as if there's a, a kind of an incongruity to our rationale here. And even more so considering that most people in this region are not going to drive the gardener or the DVP all that frequently. Uh, and yet I think there's this really uh, immediate gut reaction to the idea of tools. I think people probably feel that this is uh, the thin edge of the wedge, that if it can be done in that facility, it's going to be coming to a, to a road near you. Um, and also it just, it just strikes people who are in their cars who feel like they're tapped out and pay enough. And this fits into this much broader narrative that's going on in this province now about how uh, user fees uh, and taxes seem to have uh, gone up, especially around hydro bills, and, and people are feeling tapped out. And I think uh, the Premier is responding to that with this specific case, and yet uh, it's also uh, proving problematic in terms of how the city is going to pay for infrastructure. And I think this is part of a much broader conversation in the region about how we're going to generate the major dollars that we need to pay for infrastructure. Everyone gets on board when we develop these plans for subway lines and LRT lines uh, and new roads in parts of the region. Uh, People get on board with this and they say, uh, this is what we need for a thriving region. This is what's going to make this this place great and successful. Uh, And yet now it's time to actually pay for it. And when that conversation starts, uh, people start to get really cold feet. Why is it, though, that people are not getting upset? You just mentioned a statistic a couple of minutes ago, Maddie, that uh, more than half of the, the projects that the City of Toronto, for instance, has on tap for the next number of years are unfunded. Hamilton's the same situation. They don't know where the money's going to come from. Yeah, we're going to build that road or we're going to fix that road, but we don't know how we're going to pay for it yet. I mean, if you or I ran our households like that, we'd be in deep trouble. Uh, and yet taxpayers, I don't know if it's because it's too abstract for them. They don't seem to understand the gravity of the situation that cities are facing. And, and most municipalities are facing the same condition. And this has something to do with the, uh, the basic properties of infrastructure, if you will, that they're generally out of sight and out of mind. I mean, we don't think about many of these issues. We don't think about the pipes. We don't think about the sewers. Uh, we don't think about the state of the subway tunnel that we don't see as we're, as we're going through it and it's dark. But yet all of those assets have to be not just built, but operated and maintained. And just like your home, when you, if you buy a new home in the first few years, there's very little maintenance if it was well built. Uh, and, and so you can get a, a false sense of security that uh, everything is going well, that, it's, it's, um, that, that you don't have those costs. And then as the house ages, things start to break down. And anyone who lives in a house that's you know, 50 years, 75 years, 100 uh, years old starts to experience what it's like to have old infrastructure. Things start to break down, and the costs are really quite significant. And that's where we're at with our infrastructure in this region. Much of it was built 50 years, 75 years, 100 years ago. And now we're seeing its, its, its age, and we haven't kept up, not just with the operation of maintenance, but with building new projects. And so we've reached this tipping point where if we want this region to continue to thrive and really uh, go to the next level, we're going to have to start investing major dollars. We have the plans for it. And there are plans for all sorts of infrastructure investment, billions of dollars. I mean, I cited $33 billion over 10 years just for the city of Toronto. But for this whole region, the number is astronomical. It's, it's way larger than that. And yet we still need to figure out how to pay for all of that investment. And I think that's really the difficult conversation we're having now. There's always going to be pushback anytime any municipality, I guess really any level of government says, okay, we're going to increase your taxes or we're going to increase the user fee, whatever the case might be, your hydro bill. We can go on. That's an endless list, it seems. But at, at the end of the day, do we not just kind of grumble about it and then accept it? And I'll use the example of the 407. Uh, when, when that started a number of years ago, of course, the, the, the same debate was going on. How could they possibly toll roads here in Ontario? It's terrible. 
and and hardly anybody used it. I mean, you could play street hockey on that road just about any time in the middle of the day. It's a very busy highway now, so obviously people have accepted the fact that, you know what, I can get from point A to point B a lot faster. I'm going to have to pay for it, but it's worth it. Uh, uh, are we going to get that way with road tolls in cities now? Well, this is actually exactly what happened in Stockholm. So Stockholm um, was facing a congestion problem, and they uh, decided that they would run a pilot study about road tolls. Uh, so they didn't say we're going to do it all at once. They said we'll run a pilot study uh, to implement road tolls. And before they implemented the pilot study, they did a survey, uh, and the majority of people were uh, heavily opposed to this idea of charging for roads. And then they implemented it, and uh, they spent some of the money that was raised on improved transit service right away, like buses. And that's the type of investment that you can make right away. And uh, after the, the uh, toll had run for a while, they did another uh, survey, and it was it, it is flipped. It was all, people were overwhelmingly in favor of it. And the question is why? No one likes paying for uh, for something new. But they noticed that the service was better. The roads were more reliable. They could get around faster, and there was actually they were getting value for money for paying, or they were finding other ways to get around uh, and, and avoid having to take their cars at all. And so I think your example with the 401 is very, or 407 is very similar, that people uh, experience that as, as a high-quality service. And as they see the service getting better, um, this idea of, of paying for it starts to make a lot more sense. And I think you have to start somewhere with this idea of road tolling. And I think road tolling in this case is, is good policy. Um, it's just that it's very challenging politically, uh, and not just at the city level, but we're now seeing at the provincial level as well. I'm not trying to chastise taxpayers. I mean, you and I are both taxpayers too, and I, I think we pay way too much too. I do, but but it seems as if you know we we want the Cadillac and we want to pay for it with at the economy car price, and we want better services, but we don't seem to want to pay the price. And this is not just with ed, uh, with the environmental or for the the, the road toll thing. But I mean, you, know, you mentioned Scandinavia a second ago, Maddie. I mean, you, yeah. you know, they've got a much better better healthcare system than we do in Canada. We used to think we were the best in the world. We're not anymore. Uh, but they pay for it. They're, I mean, their taxes are significantly higher in those countries, yet they, they see a result of that. Their education systems are better. Their healthcare systems are better. Their transportation systems are better. Uh, we don't seem to want to pay anymore, but we want to be up at that level. And it, it, it doesn't seem to dawn on us right now that you can't have it both ways. I think part of what happens to uh, is that people get hung up on this idea of waste. Uh, they, they, they get fixated on the idea that there's gravy train or that, uh, that these services are wasteful and that, uh, in play, in, that our governments are not delivering projects efficiently. Uh, and, and so that makes it very difficult to convince people that we, we need to continue to invest in this infrastructure. Uh, and, so, uh, and, and I think that's really the basis for, for why it's been very difficult to raise the money. And we've invested in numerous Cadillacs. The Shepherd Subway is a Cadillac service that uh, is sparsely used for how many people it could carry. Uh, and, and similarly, the Airport Express Rail Link is, an, is a Cadillac service that's sparsely used and is being subsidized by tens of millions of dollars a year. So we tend to want these big mega projects. Many times we make these decisions politically. Uh, and then when they don't pan out, it's, it's very frustrating for people. And they continue to look at this system and say, well, if we continue to make these politicized decisions, we're not actually solving the problems and it's costing a fortune. Uh, it's now, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I have no trust and I don't want to invest in these projects anymore. And I'm not giving you any more money because I don't trust that you're going to spend it efficiently. And so I think it's a, it's, it's, it's a really difficult uh, challenge. And when, when, we, when uh, the city of Toronto has been audited by, by KPMG, uh, my colleagues at the University of Toronto have looked into it, there's not a lot of waste in the system. And yet the perception, because of some of these big investments uh, that, that, that have tended to be politically motivated, tends to move us more towards uh, people feeling uh, cynical about wanting to pay higher uh, fees to pay for the infrastructure that we so badly need. i got about a minute left here. This is, there's an interesting dynamic at place here. I'm just uh, seeing the, the Premier's comments about uh, the, the increased gas tax money for, for the transit stuff. Uh, but no time today when she was making that announcement uh, did she say no to tolls. Uh, she just said we're doing this instead. So it's going to be interesting to see how Mayor Tory responds to this and whether they, they try to go ahead with this anyway. And so her uh, comments were really about affordability and about options. And mm -hmm. I think the word options is the one that's, that's so critical here, because that part I do agree with her. Um, in order for tolls to work, people have to have other uh, travel options. Uh, and part of, part of this is how long are those options going to take uh, to be implemented? If we had road tolls and um, it reduced congestion on that facility, uh, we could be running buses on that 
almost immediately. Uh, right now, you can't run a bus on the DVP or on the Gardner. If there's too much traffic, it wouldn't be consistent enough service. Uh, we could be running buses and moving many more people. We could also be encouraging people to carpool. So there's many ways that we can quickly provide people with options uh, if we're creative and not just think that it's the next mega project down the road that's going to take uh, decades to build. That's, that's, that's the way to solve this problem. Uh, and so it will be interesting to see going forward how uh, this debate around tolls continues to play out. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Of all the years I've been doing this, and that's quite a few, that we've ever had as much discussion about libraries and library systems as we have in the last four or five days. And that's a good thing. It's great to, to shine the light on this and, and talk about just exactly what goes on in libraries. And uh, uh, it obviously was all, you know, because of some comments that were made about a week ago, I guess, last Friday at a budget meeting when some people looked at the numbers here and uh, Councillor Donna Skelly, of course, uh, uh, had some comments about the cost and, and the budget perhaps uh, you know, being too high and, you know, was it justified, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and we've had uh, Donna on the program to talk about that and to, to, to clarify her remarks, and I know she spoke yesterday as well. But the good news is is that uh, we're starting to talk about uh, assets. And, you know, we just had the discussion with the city manager a few minutes ago here on the program uh, about the challenges and about uh, having to do a, a, a very detailed analysis of just where the money's being spent these days. And uh, and as I mentioned last uh, time we did this discussion a couple of days ago on Monday, uh, this is money well spent uh, investing in, in the library system here in Hamilton. And yesterday during their uh, presentation at the city council, they actually came up with some statistics that indicate just how much you and me and everybody else in this community uh, uses and appreciates those library services. To get some details on that, we're pleased to welcome back uh, Laura Lacassic, who is the uh, Manager of Communication and Partnerships with the Hamilton Public Library and the Telling Tales Festival. Laura, thanks for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. I, uh, I hear things went pretty well yesterday. Uh, yes, we had a, a great res- great budget presentation yesterday. Uh, I think perhaps maybe one of the longest. So we had lots of time to chat about the library. Well, and, and let's. I want to talk a little bit about the systems and the programs that are in place here too, because the. Uh, and, and by the way, as we said on Monday, when when you and, and uh, Paul were on the program, uh, Paul Tical, of course, uh, the chief librarian. Yes. Uh, every city councilor should and 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 must, uh, you know, talk about budgets and talk about this and that and why are we spending Absolutely. this, et cetera. So that that's fair game. I get that, but but questioning the legitimacy uh, and and the need for libraries and and you know what goes on here, uh, I, I thought was offline. So then that was the discussion from Monday. But you showed some numbers yesterday that indicate that uh, that Hamilton actually is one of the leaders in the province when it comes to library usage. We are, for sure. Uh, So some of the numbers that were shared at the budget presentation were our own stats, but there is an organization in Ontario called the Federation of Ontario Public Libraries that does pull together some data sets. So I think the one that caught a lot of people's attention uh, was the, the... the data set that refers to the circulations per active library card holder uh, in Ontario in 2014. And I had Bruce, uh, one of my great staff members, calculate for 2015 as well. Uh, So we're looking at library systems that have a population of greater than 250,000. And in that category, Bill, we rank number one both in 2014 and in 2015. Now, just to understand the, and explain the terminology, circulations per cardholder, that essentially means uh, taking stuff out, right? I mean, borrowing uh, stuff yeah. from the library. That's what it is. Yeah, In other words, it's, it's, not, it's one thing to be a member, but you're using the card. That, yeah, exactly. So you have a library card and you're actively using it. And uh, in that case, our active cardholders have borrowed more. Uh, than any other library system with a population of greater than 250,000. Now, that tells me that what you're doing and what you're offering at the library is clearly relevant to the community because they're using you as a, as a, as a resource. Yes. I, I think that's a very clear indication that, yes, uh, our customers like what we have. They're borrowing it. They're borrowing it at record levels, whether it's a physical item, uh, a digital item, a streaming item, those those circulations all figure into that calculation. Uh, and again, as we talked about the other day, Laura, a lot of people, when we mention the libraries, we play Word Association and they think rows and rows of books. Uh, there are still lots of books in the library. I don't want to give people the wrong idea, but this is this is a different different approach to, to libraries. And Hamilton is, is one of the leaders in this, but I mean, other communities are jumping on side with this as well. This is, uh, libraries have always been full service. Uh, you know, if you want to go back to the 40s and 50s or 60s, uh, but the only services that were available there were, were books. I mean, uh, you know, the world has changed and libraries have changed with it. 
We have. We have absolutely. And uh, I, I think you probably recall Paul saying that we are not focusing on digital books to uh, the detriment of, of physical books. Uh, we are going to provide both platforms as long as our community demands them. And in fact, we've seen a bit of an increase in uh, physical circulation. Uh, there is still that want to have a book. Uh, and you know, if you've got a, a young toddler, um, it's just so much nicer to cuddle up with your, your child and a book to read together. But in addition to that, certainly programs and services here, um, our, our programs have increased year over year for the last several years. Uh, let me just take a peek here. Uh, total programs for 2016 came in at uh, 9,135, so up 3% from last year with attendance of 181,000. So it's not only the collections bill, it's the programs and the services that people are also making use of. Who is, let's, let's prioritize if we could, if we, Lauren, talk about what's being used most and, and, and why people are flocking to libraries in record numbers. And like I say, it's great that Hamilton's right on top of the heap here when you look at the statistics right across the province. But I, I, my understanding is that usage is up in just about every other city as well. It is. Uh, and I, I think, Bill, when you look around a city, there are fewer and fewer places that people can go and spend time without spending money. So, you know, if you go into a coffee shop to use free Wi-Fi, for example, there's an expectation and in some cases a requirement that you spend some money in that establishment. You can come to the library for as long as you need. We have free Wi-Fi. It's warm in the winter. It's cool in the summer. Uh, and so for a lot of students, for a lot of, of folks who need to be out of um, their residence through the day, the library is a good place to be. I, <laughs> we were talking, and you know what this did, and, and it's interesting, I was just going on email with some friends of mine over the last couple of days about uh, the discussion that's been going on in this community now, Laura, because of, of this. And uh, and what it did, it got a lot of people reminiscing about you know past usage of libraries, what they used to do back in the days. and. And and I I still have memories of heading down to the library on Concession Street there to do the old school projects and uh, invariably everybody had to do something about the history of the city of Hamilton obviously because that's where we live and I think you only had like four books in the whole city about you know the Hamilton with George Hamilton etc and you had to get there and you had to make sure that you know you were going to get one of those books and that was all there was to it uh, <laughs> but the resources and the availability right now for information like that is is so much different now than it was back then. It is. It is for sure. So not only do we have those electronic resources, but particularly if you're wanting something about Hamilton, uh, we have our local history and archives department at the Central Library on the third floor, and their collection is just absolutely phenomenal. Uh, and that's where we have our, our, our archival depository of everything having to do with Hamilton, including, Bill, you might find yourself in a, a yearbook on our shelves. <laughs> <laughs> One never knows. Uh, talk to us about who's using the library and, 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 what, and those resources. and uh, Because there was some question earlier in the week, Laura, about, well, you know, aren't Aren't other agencies supplying these same sorts of services? Is this really a duplication? I, I don't think so. I, I, I don't think so either, at least not to the best of my knowledge. Uh, we have everyone using our services, whether it's um, um, moms, families with, with um, new babies coming to baby time, uh, because, of course, that early literacy piece is so very important in, in prepping your child to be um, ready to go when they get to school so that they'll, they'll learn well and, and read well because that's really a basis for everything going forward. Uh, you know, school-age children coming for library visits or programs. Uh, we've got teens and university students. Uh, our fourth floor here at Central, uh, if you come here in the evening, you'll see tables full of students collaborating, studying. Uh, Terry Berry Library, for example, which is so close to Mohawk College, we've extended the hours uh, so that during exam time, students can come into the facility uh, after hours uh, until, I believe, 11 o'clock at night uh, for a quiet place to study. Uh, we've got programs for adults. We have programs for seniors. Uh, we have programs, you know, catering to folks that have dementia. They're dementia-friendly programs. We're working in conjunction with the Alzheimer's Society. So we really do look to ensure that we have something for everyone at the Hamilton Public Library. I have mentioned this before, but it bears repeating. And you know, somebody's asked me why I was so passionate. Well, I've always been passionate about libraries and, uh, and reading and, and education. And the reading is probably the number one way to to educate yourself, uh, broaden your horizons, you know, increase your vocabulary. On and on and on. We all we all about those lists. But uh, but our, our daughter, our oldest daughter, uh, has her master's degree in library science and technology. Graduated from uh, University of Western Ontario. 
Uh, and, and Amanda has always been filling me in about the, you know, what's going on there. And she's doing fabulous work. And, and she talked about a couple of other concepts because she obviously heard our conversation from the other day. Uh, and talked about uh, space in the libraries. As urban centers continually to intensify, more and more people are sharing less and less space, and families and entrepreneurs are in condos or apartments these days, and uh, there, are, there aren't meeting places, there aren't things to do that business and do that research, and libraries are offering that for them now. That's, it's, it's become a de facto conference or a boardroom for an awful lot of small businesses and entrepreneurs. It has, it has definitely. Uh, and in fact, at Central Library on Monday evenings, we have a program called Power Up Mondays where we bring in um, the great women from Mabel's Labels to share some of their secrets about small business ownership. Uh, so we, we do look, at, as I say, to our, our different, different segments of the population. What, what is it that people want? Um, Amanda will be very familiar, I know, with the community-led approach to uh, librarianship. Uh, in fact, we sit on the same committee uh, through the Ontario Public Library Association. That's right. uh, and so we want to make sure that there are fewer and fewer barriers for people to access our, our services, but also to get some input from them to what they'd like to see from their public library. Now, you know, sometimes uh, the requests are a little bit beyond what we're able to provide, uh, but certainly if, you know, there's more attention needed for small business, then we'll look at ways to, to do more programming, to make sure that our collections, our reference materials meet those needs. And I know some people questioned uh, during the presentation, but why? Why do you need a music room? Why should people be able to? Uh, th- th- first of all, it's a it's a fabulous idea, but I mean, those are young entrepreneurs too. Those are the potential singers, songwriters, and arts and culture is a big part. Always has been a big part of libraries. Oh, most certainly, most certainly, uh, and we do um, we do ensure that there are cultural opportunities for our. our our customers. Uh, we have at several of our libraries now uh, an opportunity for local artists to exhibit their, their works. Uh, we have at Central Library a Friday noon hour program that features uh, whether it's um, musicians from the Hamilton Philharmonic or Mohawk College or the McMaster Women's Choir, uh, but certainly uh, there's a musical opportunity. Um, we have our own music strategy here at the Hamilton Public Library, which was very much written in tandem with the city's music strategy, uh, and we're active with that group as well. So we're wanting to make sure that it's not just about literature, it's about all of the elements of culture. Do you guys do open mics? You know, we have in the past. We haven't done any lately, but, you know, maybe it's time to look at that again. It's it's a fabulous idea. I know other library services have done that. I know you used to do it. Yeah, that's why I was asking if it was still a program that was ongoing, because it's a great way for young people that don't have the resources uh, to be able to go out there and display their talents or try to learn something and talk to people that do things like that uh, and, and, and maybe get them out of their shell. I mean, it's it's a fabulous idea, and I know they've been very successful in other communities in the past. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So where do you go from here? The other thing I want to talk about here, we've got a couple of minutes left, uh, Laura, is uh, not uh, the, the services are very important, and I'm glad we're having this conversation. But the other stuff that you guys talked about during your presentation to council yesterday I, I think is, is important as well, which essentially says you guys run a pretty good ship. I mean, you, uh, you do look after yourselves. It's not just, uh, you know, we want more money, we need more money. I mean, uh, you know, from a staffing standpoint, from a from a, a way of spending the money wisely, uh, the, the 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 allocations you do get from the the, the city in situations like this, uh, this is a pretty well run and very financially stable and responsible organization. Well, thank you for that. I, I do believe we are. Yes, uh, and we do look for opportunities to um, beef up what we get through uh, the municipal contributions. So we do apply for grants. Uh, we've had we've been very successful, for example, with grants for um, programming for seniors and older adults through the New Horizons program. Uh, and in some cases, you know, it, it's been a creative approach to aging for older adults, which, um, you know, looking at memoir writing and uh, sketching, and, and uh, we had Sky Gilbert doing drama with some of our older adults in Dundas. So uh, we really do look for those grant opportunities as well to beef up what we get from the municipality. As the city continues to grow, uh, libraries, we already know how important they are and, and how well-received they are. How do you grow the system? How do you, how do you keep up with the increasing demand? Well, you know, there's a lot of analytics and statistics and uh, sort of looking forward and forecasting that goes into it. So we're working right now with our facilities uh, manager uh, at where our libraries are. Where are there uh, gaps? And I, I think um, you probably heard Paul mention that uh, we are looking at doing um, a, a, a proper research 
program project, excuse me, uh, to look at where those gaps are and, and where where is their need. So, for example, Bimbrook, you know, uh, up until what, maybe five, six years ago, was really a very, very small bedroom community. Yeah. And, and now it's it's grown by leaps and bounds. So uh, looking at, at um, population trends, uh, census data is coming out this year, so we'll rely heavily on some of that census data. Um, but there, there's quite a bit that goes into looking at where we go next. It's it's a fascinating story, and, and, and I'm glad that you got to tell it to the councils, because obviously I think what this did is, is raise some awareness uh, on behalf of the city council as well. I know the different councillors at times have sat on the library board and been very supportive of this, but it's, uh, it's, it's extremely beneficial for you guys to have this opportunity to kind of get the story out here. Uh, so we we have this fabulous system. Uh, it's probably the one of the most popular ones in all of Ontario, according to the statistics that you talked about here. So it looks like we're over the bump in the road here, and it was, uh, it's not smooth sailing from here on in because you are evolving all the time. I, I know that one person that, that emailed us uh, after we had our discussion the other day was saying, well, this is just the library trying to show that they're still relevant. And, and I, I, I disagreed with that, and I took exception to it, because the way I'm looking at this, Laura, and I see what you've done with the library, with, with Paul and Ken Roberts before that for so many years and some great folks that you've got there, is yes, there, there's been an evolution here, but you, you initiated it. It's not like you're saying, oh, my gosh, numbers are down. We have to change. We have to be, pretend we're something else. This is, this is really what you guys have always been doing, and, and, and actually you're ahead of the curve in a lot of, the, of what you've been doing here. And we, you know, very much look at the fact that libraries are really responsible to ensuring that every one of our citizens has the opportunity for lifelong learning. So whether it's that early literacy component, whether it's creative aging for seniors, um, lifelong learning is so very important. And so in order to be able to ensure that our citizens have that opportunity, we have to be on top of the trends. Uh, you know, you look at students who, for example, may be doing some graphic design work uh, through the school year, and then when summer break comes, they don't have access, for example, to the Mac computers with the Adobe Creative Suite. What, what do they do? You know, over the course of a four-month summer break from college, you could lose some of those skills. So for them to be able to come here and to use our digital lab on the fourth floor at Central Library with their library card for free, uh, that's an amazing, an amazing support for our students. Well, exactly. And, and for those that said, well, come on, reading programs, you should be doing that in school. Well, you know, schools close at 3.30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and they're closed weekends, and they're closed through the summer months. Uh, that's that's not full access. What you guys are doing is that full access. You, you're supplying that service and enhancing what the school is doing. Well, exactly. And we look at it as practicing the reading that students are learning through the day, but also um, really supporting that love of reading. So it's not just reading for EQAO testing. It's it's loving that particular form of culture. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.